Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm from the left coast. And what you need to know about our area is that Clint Eastwood was the mayor of Carmel. And the university near us, Santa Cruz University, has as its sports nickname the Banana Slugs. And that pretty much describes our area, a wacky place. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 15? I am so happy to be here tonight and so excited about what the Lord is doing here at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque. Pastor Pete and I have been friends for a number of years, and I'm so blessed to see the Lord's hand upon his life, and it's just really exciting. And I've never been to Albuquerque before, and I figured it out that only when I learned how to spell it was I able to come here. So now that I know how to spell it, I got to come. So it's great to be here. Will you join me in a word of prayer? We're so thankful, Father, for the Word of God. And we're so blessed to know and partake in the ministry of the Spirit of God who will take Your Word and make it real to our hearts so that it changes our lives. We give you this time of Bible study. In Jesus' name, amen. Righteousness exalts a nation, the Bible tells us, and sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14.34 We've got a situation here in our own nation where morality is being determined not by the absolutes of God's Word, but by public opinion. Whatever the polls say, that's what's right today. Whatever the polls say is wrong, that's what becomes wrong, and everything becomes twisted. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the founding fathers of this nation were afraid of democracy. They were afraid of the rule by the people. They were afraid of everyone collectively coming together and deciding on matters that pertain to the populace. And so they put in place the balance of powers, the executive, the judicial, the legislative branches of our government. Well, to guard against that problem of democracy, that is the people running things, to guard against the issue of a fluctuating morality, the Lord commanded the kings of Israel to do something very simple. When they assumed power, they were to take for themselves a copy of the law that they would get from the priests, and they were to copy their own personal copy of the law. And then every single day, they were to read from that copy of the law so that they would know to fear the Lord, so that they would know to trust Him for every one of their decisions, so that the nation could be led in righteousness and in truth. And you can measure the success or the failure of each particular regime by whether or not the king actually did that. Because you see, the Bible says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, 
nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which brings forth its fruit in season, its leaf also does not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And so the Lord said to Israel, I want to bless you people, I love you so much. So I want your kings to follow hard after me by keeping their noses and their hearts in the word. Well, in chapter 15, we've got four kings that we look at briefly. Two of them in Judah, the southern kingdom, made up of Judah and Benjamin. And then two of them in Israel, the northern kingdom, made up of the remaining northern ten tribes. So we start in verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. I will learn more about Maacah when we get down to verse 13, but suffice it to say, she wasn't a God-fearing woman. So who was this Abijam? Well, it turns out he's the grandson of David, Uh, or the great-grandson of David, the grandson of Solomon, and the son of Rehoboam, who succeeded Solomon. He had tremendous natural advantages, but those natural advantages didn't suffice him very well because they don't necessarily mean anything. Neither do natural disadvantages, as we see throughout Scripture. So his reign was brief, only three years. And it tells us in verse 3, that he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him, his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. One of the disadvantages that Abijam had is that his father was Rehoboam, who was, as you've seen in your study of First Kings, a foolish man. But that didn't doom Abijam to living a foolish life on his own and being a foolish king. The Bible says we're not judged because of the sins of our parents, but we are affected potentially by the sins of our parents, and many times we have to overcome the sinful tendencies of our parents. My own father started drinking when he was 18 years of age, and he was an alcoholic for 40 years. And I had that same tendency growing up. At 13 was the first time I experienced what alcohol could do. And I was heading in the same exact direction. Aren't you glad for the thing called the new birth? Aren't you glad for regeneration? Aren't you glad for another chance? The Lord gave me that chance a number of years ago. Well, my father, the story is a good one. It ends well. My father got sober over 20 years ago, and he's now walking with the Lord. And it's very wonderful to watch the change in his life. Thank you. But Jesus Christ makes the difference. He's the one that turns the tide of the direction our lives would naturally go. But notice also about this King Abijam and about his heart. His heart wasn't loyal to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David. Now the word translated loyal here is a word which means at peace with. So his heart was not at peace with the Lord his God. 
In other words, there were things in his life, in Abijam's life, that were creating an enmity between himself and God. There was a war, in other words. There was a struggle. There was a disharmony. There was a disunion. Now, that's true of all of us naturally, but Abijam allowed that condition to continue. His heart was not right with or at peace with God. And when we became Christians and we accepted Jesus Christ, the Lord did a wonderful thing for you and me. He imputed His righteousness to us. You know that. He now sees us in Christ. We have an entirely new position. We have an entirely new relationship with God. And it's wonderful. We're in Christ. We're forgiven. There's no condemnation which is against us now because we're in Christ Jesus. However, if a Christian, a regenerated man, a regenerated woman, walks in the power of his flesh or her flesh and throws away or sets aside the power and the reality of walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, well, what does the Bible say about that person? Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 tell us, the carnal mind, that is the mind that is set on the flesh, it's enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'll tell you who, by their life, actually is able to please the Lord. And that's the person, the regenerate individual, who is seeking to live a dependent life upon the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord doesn't keep track of all of our failures, and He doesn't write them down and use them against us later. He's interested more when we fail that we just get up. And when we get up, what we need to do to get up is just simply submit ourselves again to the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know the Holy Spirit well, get to know Him. He's wonderful. He's the replacement that the Lord Jesus sent in prayer to His Father in order that He might be with us forever. He does the same thing for us that Jesus did for His disciples 2,000 years ago. So the Spirit-filled life. Obviously, Abijam wasn't living a life that pleased the Lord. Nevertheless, even though he had failed and his heart was not loyal, nevertheless, verse 4, for David's sake the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. For David's sake, Abijam stayed on the throne for as long as he did. Why? Because the Lord had made a promise to David and had said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David's house and his kingdom would be established forever and his throne would be established forever. And so here that promise is repeated. For David's sake, Abijam was allowed to continue the faithfulness of God. And now our David, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, our Father is loyal to us and keeps His promise to us. The issue is, am I in Christ or am I not? And being in Christ, I am the recipient of an amazing number of precious promises. And by those precious promises, I can walk with the Lord and so can you.
the faithfulness of God. Now, it's also interesting to me to note how the Lord basically sums up David's life. Verse 5 tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. This was an Old Testament evaluation of David's life. Very gracious, wouldn't you agree? I mean, there were other failures, obviously, in David's life. He wasn't a very good father. He also had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, There were things that were, in addition to this, wrong in David's life. Yet the only part that the Lord mentions, and this is Old Testament, is the matter of Uriah the Hittite when David arranged circumstances to have him killed to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. Now, in the New Testament... There is no mention whatsoever of any of David's sins under the new covenant, under the blood of Jesus, under what he did for us at Calvary's cross. That's New Testament grace, and that's the grace that you and I are under. And here's the deal. I was thinking about this the other day. We're not as bad as the devil says we are. The devil comes with his pointed finger of accusation and condemnation, making us feel like we'll never measure up, that we're not worthy, that we can't do it, that we're miserable failures. And that's the devil always trying to put us under his thumb. But we're never as bad as the devil says we are. But the flip side of that, (laughs) we're not as good as we think we are either. (laughs) The other day, you know, I'm getting older. And... uh, I'm trying to do a good job of keeping myself groomed, but hair is growing where I don't want it to grow. And it's not growing anymore where I wish it would. And, you know, I try. So the other day my wife, she bought one of these brand new little circular mirrors and she stuck it on the side mirror in our bathroom. And I thought, well, you know, it's time to manicure the nose hairs. And I thought, you know, I had done a pretty good job. I looked at the regular mirror and got them all out as well as I could. And I thought, you know, there's no nose hairs that need to be clipped anymore, you know, until I looked in that mirror of my wife's, this one that amplifies everything, that makes it huge. And and the inside of my nostrils looked like a big cave, you know. But the the advantage was I could see everything, you know. So, I, you know, check it out, man, after the service if you want to. It's a good job. It's a good job. But But I thought, you know, I look in the mirror and I see whatever I see, right? And it's my own estimation of myself. Is it really accurate? Not really. Not when I get up to the real mirror. And the Lord, you see, He understands everything about me. He sees the whole picture, the whole thing. And He knows... We're not quite as much as we think we are. But you know what? Here's the great news. He loves us anyway. He loves you. He loves me. Warts and all. Nose hairs and all. Ear hairs even and all. He loves us in spite of all of it. And that's so great. And I just love serving a God like that, don't you? It's just wonderful. So we go on and read the end of... Abijam's life, verse 6, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did 
Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, who was king in the north. So Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. So in contrast to Asa's father, Abijam, and in contrast to his grandfather, Rehoboam, Asa was one of those that broke the mold. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, as did his father David. Now, just as much as the sins of the fathers affect the children for a number of generations, so also does the righteousness affect a thousand generations to those who love the Lord. And so now we're seeing the righteousness of David affecting one of his descendants here, and that, of course, would mean that Asa was being affected. God's faithful. He'll keep his word. What did Asa do? What were some of his accomplishments? They're listed for us in verse 12. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. This word perverted persons here in our King James or New King James text is the Hebrew word kadesh. And these are the individuals who were dedicated and devoted to idolatry through male prostitution and also sodomy. And so through male prostitution and acts of sodomy, they worshipped their gods. These are the things that the Canaanites had done before Israel came into the land. And now we see that they were in the land again, but Asa, he banished them from the land. And cause these perverted persons to no longer be within the nation. And again, we make the point that today morality in these issues is being determined by public opinion, not by the absolute standard of God's Word. When and if we have a spiritual awakening in our country, or if we have, that would probably be better to say, hopefully we will, We should pray for that regularly, constantly. Lord, bring us revival. If we have a spiritual awakening in this country that sweeps the nation, then hopefully we'll return to the standard of the absolute truth of God's Word. But right now, truth is being determined by individual and public opinion. It's interesting the age we're in and the situation we find our country in. It's really a troubling Situation. I know many of you are troubled, as I'm troubled. I found this little bit of history dating all the way back to the time that our original 13 states adopted their new constitution back in the year 1787. At that time, there was a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh by the name of Alexander Tyler, And he had some interesting things to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic 
1,800 years earlier or so. And he talked about democracy and how temporary it is because it's the rule of the people. We are not actually technically a democracy. We are a republican form of government, a representative form of government. It wasn't originally set up that the people would rule, but that the representatives would rule according to a certain standard of truth. And even our founders understood that if we abandoned the truth that the Constitution was originally based on, the Bible specifically, that our republic would be in trouble. Well, listen to what Tyler has to say. These are very insightful words. He said, A democracy will continue to exist up until the time that voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal po- uh, policy, which is always followed by dictatorship. And then he cycled in in a description of what happens to world civilizations. And he said the average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been about 200 years. We're longer than that now in the United States. And during those 200 years, these nations always progress through the following sequence. Listen carefully. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy to dependence. Upon whom? Upon the government that they just voted into power. And from dependence back into bondage. Well, if that doesn't describe where we're at, I don't know what does. And these were written by a Scottish professor in the year 1887. Amazingly insightful for our present day. So when Esau banished the perverted persons from the land, he was acting according to the absolute standard of God's truth and God's word, which we need to do again. Pray for a spiritual renewal. Pray for a spiritual awakening in America's churches, in America's pulpits, that the pulpit would once again be characterized by the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God all over this land. Then an awakening can take place. Well, not only did he do that, verse 13, but he also removed Maaka, his grandmother, from being queen mother. Why did he remove her? Because she'd made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. Now, this is also interesting to me, an obscene image of Asherah. Asherah was the goddess of fertility. The plural would be Asherim. And this goddess of fertility, these obscene images, it was nothing more than their ancient version of pornography. So his mother was a pornographer. And when Asa saw this, he cut it down and he removed her from office and and from that position that she had as queen mother, really bold move on his part because of the effect that that was having upon the people and upon their spirituality. 
Today, obviously, we are plagued, plagued by pornography. And I've been surprised to learn that it's not just a male problem. It's also a female problem in increasing numbers. And I would encourage you, if you've got the Internet at home, make sure you set up filters. Make sure you set up some type of accountability. You've probably been encouraged in this area before, but I would encourage you again. Set up something like Covenant Eyes or Net Accountability or one of the other services or some form of filtering software just to make sure that somebody knows where you're going when you surf the net. And be careful. Purity has to begin here in the church, in the body of Christ. And if it's not true that the church is pure, then how in the world can we expect the culture to be pure? We're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But Jesus said, if the salt has lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? What's the it that Jesus is referring to? You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But if the salt loses its savor, with what shall it be salted? He's referring to the world. How will the world be salted? How will the world be preserved against darkness and against these kinds of sins if the salt, the church, has lost its savor. So that's to me a tremendous motivation to walk closely with the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? Very, very important. So this is a good move on his part. He burned this image. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. And we read about these high places throughout the Old Testament. Originally, there were places where the pagans offered sacrifices to their gods. And David didn't worship on those high places, but his son Solomon did sacrifice to Yahweh on the high places. That was the beginning of a little bit of a compromise. And then later... When Solomon compromised even further and began to marry heathen wives, then he set up a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, that terrible Moabite deity named Chemosh. He set up a high place to worship that deity, further compromise. And then in Rehoboam's day, Solomon's son, there were also high places that were being built on every high tree, it tells us, or every high hill and every green tree, under every green tree, high places everywhere. It was spiritual compromise. It was letting into their spiritual culture something which they shouldn't have allowed into their spiritual culture. An area of struggle for Israel, and it ultimately led to wholesale idolatry, which caused the nation to be judged. The lesson is, of course, beware of compromise. We have to do what David did. At the end of Psalm 139, after he worships the Lord because of the Lord's knowledge of him and the Lord's presence with him and all of these things about which David worshiped the Lord, at the very end he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. That's the key. I've got to be willing to sit before the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to search my heart. 
I want you to inspect me, Lord. Put the big mirror in front of me, would you please? And look and see what's there in my heart and show me through your word what you want to change. And he'll do it. He'll be faithful to answer that prayer. And then we'll be able to avoid this compromise that can so easily weigh us down. Other than that, however, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. He also brought, verse 15, into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. Now there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. So Jeroboam was succeeded by Baasha, and there was war between Asa and Baasha all of their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now what was going on here is that now there is a war taking place, a civil war within the nation. Prior to this happening, though, there were ten years of peace. Now, when you compare the record of Asa's life, I think there are 16 verses here describing Asa's life in 1 Kings 15. But then when you go over to 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 16, you find that there are about 48 verses dedicated to Asa's life. So that's obviously a much fuller description of the things that he did. In the first 10 years or so of Asa's reign, there were a lot of great things going on. Not only did he remove these idols and all of these things that took place under his careful guidance and leadership, But also, Asa took advantage of the situation to build up their cities. So they built walls around their cities. They built towers and gates and bars around their cities. And then he worked on building their defense, their national defense. And they developed a standing army of 300,000 men and then 280 other thousand men from Benjamin. So all told a standing army of 580,000 just within that small nation of Judah. And as everything was secure and everything was working well and the kingdom seemed to be solid, the Lord raised up an adversary for Judah, the Ethiopian king by the name of Zerah. And he attacked Asa and attacked Judah with a standing army of one million men. So do the math. You've got 580,000 going against one million. And understandably, Asa was freaked out. But not so much so that he didn't trust the Lord. He went to the Lord in prayer. And he really sought the Lord for deliverance and for help. He didn't trust in his 580,000 soldiers. He didn't trust in brilliant military strategy. He trusted in the Lord and he called upon the Lord in prayer. And the Lord answered the prayer mightily and routed the Ethiopians. And there was a great victory that was won, Judah being victorious. And that was a wonderful thing that took place. And if you'd put your finger here and turn over with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 15, you'll see what happens just after that. It's, It's really to be the blueprint for Asa's life. If he lives this way, then there would be success all of his days. So the victory is won against the Ethiopians, a mighty slaughter, a tremendous 
war was won because of the Lord's favor upon the people. And then it says in 2 Chronicles 15.1 that the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong. And do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. What an encouraging message from the prophet. And that's what happened in verse 8. When Asa heard these words and this prophecy... He took courage and instituted even more reforms. Tremendous leadership on the part of this king. Okay, now we go back to 1 Kings 15. We'll come back again to 2 Chronicles, but for now go back to 1 Kings 15 and we pick up with this story. All of those things have happened. And in 1 Kings 15 we see this civil war going on between Baasha and Asa. And in verse 17, we've already read it, Baasha came against Judah and built some cities in Judah. The purpose of building those cities so that no one could come into Judah and no one could get out of Judah. Effectively cutting off the food supply and cutting off you know, any resources from without. Hopefully trying to isolate the kingdom in, in order to be able to better defeat them. So here's the situation. Previously, Asa had been victorious against the Ethiopians. 580,000 against a million because he relied upon the Lord. So what's he going to do here? The word of the prophet had already come to him. If you seek him, the Lord will be with you. If you reject him, he won't. So what would Asa do at this point in his career? It tells us in verse 18 that then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I've sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he'll withdraw from me. Who did he rely upon? Hey, well, he had a big bank account. He had lots of money. He had a fresh victory, but lots of resources at his disposal. So he thought, I'll buy my way to victory. No record of prayer. No record of dependence upon the Lord here. No getting down on his face and saying, Oh, God. Look at Baasha's doing. Building up these fortified cities, cutting off our food supplies, trying to choke us out. Lord, be victorious against him and fight a victory for us now as you did against the Ethiopian. No record of that kind of prayer, but instead, find the money. Go to the money. Rely on the resources. Give it to the Syrian king and say, hey, come on over and hassle Baasha. Make it hard for him so that he'll withdraw. Make a treaty with me. Relying upon the arm of the flesh. It's easy to do. It's a mistake to look around when we're in trouble 
and try to figure out, okay, what do I have at my disposal that can get me out of this? That's not the best first move. The best first move is to say, what resources does the Lord have that he might want to bring to bear upon this situation? Lord, I'm coming to you. I trust you. And praying, seeking his face. That's not what Esau did. He tried to hire help. He did hire help. And so in verse 20 it says that Ben-Hadad heeded King Esau, sent the captains of his armies against the city of Israel. He attacked Ijon, Dan, and Abel, Beth, Maaka, and all Chinneroth, that's all of the Galilee, with all the land of Naphtali. And it happened when Baasha heard it, he stopped building Ramah and remained in Terzah. Wow. It seemed to work. The plan seemed to be effective. No prayer? Dig into the treasuries? Find help from whatever resources I can conjure up from my own reserves? And then it works. He comes over, hassles Baasha. Don't have an enemy anymore. They stop rebuilding or building these fortified cities. It seemed to work. It seemed like everything was cool. Everything was good except for when we go back to 2 Chronicles 16. So go back there. Let's see what the Lord has to say about this. Chronologically, this is the same exact time we just finished in 1 Kings. 2 Chronicles 16.7 It says, And at that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Obviously, the Lord's perspective on this was different than Esau's. Esau, it seemed like he'd pulled it off, like it worked. God's perspective is, it was a miserable failure. Oh, you got the job done, and the results were the results you wanted, but you didn't use the right means to obtain the desired results. Folks, the ends do not justify any means. They don't. It's either relying upon this arm of the flesh or it's relying upon the Spirit of God and what He wants to do in and through my life. And so the Lord rebukes this king and talks about the kind of heart that he really wants before him, the heart that's loyal to him, the heart that that he's just looking for, his eyes scanning the whole horizon, looking for someone who will trust me, who will lean on me, who will believe in me, who will take me at my word, who will believe all of my promises. So what do you think Esau's reaction was? Well, he had a couple of options. He could have humbled himself before the prophet Hanani and said, You're absolutely right. I need to go make public confession. 
I need to tell all of the people that what I did in hiring Ben-Hadad, it worked, but it was wrong. I've sinned against the Lord, and I need to offer sacrifice and renew my fellowship with him. That's not what Asa did. It tells us in verse 10 that Asa was angry with the seer, another word for prophet. And he put him in prison. Hanani, poor guy, got imprisoned because of this prophecy. For Asa was enraged at him because of this, and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time, taking his anger out on the people. Bad move. Reliance upon the flesh tends to breed more reliance upon the flesh. Trust in myself tends to breed more trust in myself. To where I get myself in a hole that I don't know how I'm in the world, what, how in the world I'm going to be able to get myself out of this hole. There was only one solution. Just stop where you are and say, Lord, I've trusted in my own resources. I haven't leaned upon the Spirit of God. I've not prayed. I've not been dependent upon you. Cleanse me, Lord. And from now on, from this moment on, fill me with your Spirit that I might live for you by your Spirit. It's the only solution. It's the only remedy. Okay, back to chapter 15. And we'll finish up the life of Asa in this chapter pretty quickly. Verse 22 tells us, Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. The rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did in the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Now that's all that 1 Kings tells us about, but if you cross-reference with 2 Kings chapter 16, we see that he became diseased in his feet, and he had a very severe malady, this disease in his feet, Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought only the physicians. Wow. Not that there was anything wrong with going to a doctor. It's just that he refused to go to the Lord. Use the doctor when you need to use the doctor, but go to the Lord along with it. Don't abandon trust in the Lord just because... You know, you've got the opportunity of medical help. But the picture we have here of Asa is this picture of this embittered man growing older, angry at Hanani the seer, angry at what had happened, angry at what had come down. And it doesn't appear that he ever really came back to a place where he was walking under the grace of God. And so the result was he didn't seek the Lord when his feet were severely hurting him and damaged and whatever the condition was that he had. And it seems to me that the reason he didn't seek the Lord is that he was just mad at God. He was upset. He had anger. He, was, he possessed a root of bitterness. But what's the solution for a root of bitterness? Hebrews 12.15 tells us, that the solution for the root of bitterness is coming once again under the grace of God. Lord, I've blown it, but you're a good God and you love me. And right now, even though I've blown it, I need you a lot. I need you a lot. 
come back in, Lord, and bless me once again. And you know what? He'll do it. He'll do it every time because he's faithful. So Esau rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. And we'll quickly read through these remaining kings of Israel now. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, in which he'd made Israel sin. Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was so, when he became king, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he'd spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he'd sinned and by which he'd made Israel sin because of his provocation with which he'd provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And of course, by now you're familiar with the sins of Jeroboam, making those two golden calves, putting one in Bethel and the other one up in the northern part in Dan, and saying, here are your gods now that you should worship Israel. Well, he's paying for the sin now. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Terzah and reigned 24 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So this terrible, sinful legacy of Jeroboam continues in the north, whereas the faithfulness of God toward David and toward the sons of David that would come and follow him on the throne, that was exhibited in the south. In the north, idolatry, rejection of God, ultimate captivity to Assyria. In the south, the faithfulness of God working, keeping, preserving, every once in a while a really, really good king, number of evil kings, but it all leads up to the coming of the king. The Lord preserved it all so that Jesus, the son of David, according to the flesh, would come as our Messiah, pay for our sins, rise from the dead, and give us eternal life. And so that's the story here of 1 Kings 15. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful again for the Word and the many lessons that can be drawn from your Word. It's certain that one thing that you teach us unequivocally is that righteousness exalts not only a nation, but it exalts our lives. But sin is a reproach, it's an embarrassment, it's a stumbling block to any people. Lord, we pray for a spiritual awakening in our own hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would search us, O God, and know our hearts and try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. And Lord, enable us once again 
to be filled with your spirit that we might rely upon your unchanging grace and your unceasing faithfulness. And Father, as we pray, we lift up Pastor Pete as he returns from his trip to Europe and pray that your hand would be upon the aircraft and your hand would be upon Pete and Lord, just be filling his mind and his heart with your grace and with thoughts of you. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name.